This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 18 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. In one of its final decisions in its just-completed term that began last October, the U.S. Supreme Court on June 29th struck down a Louisiana law that very likely would have left just one abortion clinic operating in the entire state. The topic for this week, therefore, and as promised in an earlier podcast, is abortion and where Judaism stands on it. The 5-4 ruling in the case, June Medical Services v. Russo, was a huge disappointment to those on the political right who have waged a long, bitter, and sometimes violent campaign against the court's landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. That decision gave women the right to choose whether to have an abortion, and also gave them the right to do so without excessive government interference. Any euphoria in pro-abortion circles, however, is premature. The ruling in the Louisiana case doesn't indicate that the battle to keep Roe v. Wade on the books has been won, not by any means. Although Chief Justice John Roberts, citing court precedent, sided with the court's four liberal justices this time, there's no guarantee he'll do so next time. And there will be a next time. The only question is when the next time will be. The most likely candidate is the severely restrictive Alabama law passed in May 2019 and now making its way up through the federal court system. It seeks to skirt Roe v. Wade by targeting physicians rather than their pregnant patients. The law imposes prison terms of up to 99 years on any physician who performs an abortion unless there's, quote, a serious health risk, unquote, to the mother, or if the embryo has what the law calls, quote, a lethal anomaly, unquote. Medical dictionaries define that as, quote, a defect which is incompatible with life and leads to the natural death or euthanasia on humane grounds of the fetus, unquote. Also considered a lethal anomaly is an ectopic pregnancy. That's when the fetus has attached itself outside the uterus. There are no other exemptions, though, not even for pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. There's also a spate of so-called heartbeat laws running upwards from the lower courts. Various states have passed laws prohibiting abortions if a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Since this usually occurs around the sixth week of pregnancy before most women even know they're pregnant, this is an abortion ban in everything but name. Whether or even when the court will accept any or all of these cases is fodder for Las Vegas oddsmakers. There doesn't seem to be much of an appetite at this time on the part of the justices to take on Roe v. Wade, which, in terms of court precedent in abortion cases, is the elephant in the room. Before it closed shop on July 2nd, and only three days after issuing its decision in June medical services, the court declined for now to hear several abortion-related cases when its new term begins in October. As for why Roberts disappointed conservatives by siding with the majority, the Chief Justice made his position clear in his concurring opinion. He said his decision was based on a respect for precedent that had nothing to do with abortion per se. In 2016, he noted, the court ruled on an almost identical case brought against the state of Texas. In the matter of whole woman's health, six justices voted to strike down the Texas law, while three justices voted to uphold it. Roberts was one of those three. Here's how Roberts explained voting the opposite way this time. Quote, I joined the dissent in whole woman's health and continue to believe that the case was wrongly decided. The question today, however, is not whether whole woman's health was right or wrong, but whether to adhere to it in deciding the present case. Unquote.
In other words, Roberts would have voted to keep Louisiana's law in place if doing so wouldn't have overturned a court precedent he originally opposed and still opposes. A whole different kind of abortion case when the court does accept one very possibly would find him siding with his four conservative colleagues. In anti-abortion quarters, it was almost a given that the court, with its new Trump-installed conservative majority, would overturn the 47-year-old Roe v. Wade decision. June Medical Services was its second chance to do so, but the court's reluctance to tackle began to show over a year ago. In late May 2019, the court shook up both sides of the abortion divide in the case known as Box v. Planned Parenthood. Indiana, in 2016, passed two laws signed by then-Governor Mike Pence. One law required abortion providers to bury or cremate fetal remains. Fetal tissue apparently had been treated as just another type of disposable medical waste until then. The high court simply issued a brief unsigned opinion upholding that law without ever even holding a hearing on the matter. Indiana, it said, had a legitimate state interest in the disposition of such remains. The second law Pence signed banned abortions based on certain fetal characteristics such as race, sex, or disability. A Seventh Circuit court blocked implementation of that law, but because it was the only federal court to have heard the case, the Supreme Court refused to consider it at that time. What's most interesting is that the two cases made it to the Supreme Court docket in January 2019. That the court took nearly five months to decide to not take on the case was very telling. In other words, already over a year ago, the court signaled its lack of interest, at least for the present, in tackling the abortion elephant in the room. That reluctance, though, whatever is behind it, is not likely to last forever. That's the background. So what does Judaism have to say about whether abortions should be allowed or be banned? The simple answer is that all of Judaism's major religious streams, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and Reconstructionist, have weighed in at one time or another on the side of Roe v. Wade. They don't want government to interfere with a woman's right to have an abortion. Let's be clear about this, however. Judaism doesn't encourage abortion. Its opposition, though, is on moral grounds for the most part, not halachic ones. Although, as you'll hear, this is open to interpretation. It certainly does not support abortion on demand, in the broadest application of that term, but it favors the fewest governmental restrictions on its availability. That's because such restrictions could clash with our religious right to allow an abortion in order to safeguard the health of the mother. Since most halachic authorities have a more liberal view of what that means than our government ever will have, many, for example, include a woman's mental health and some even have a very liberal definition of what that means, our religious right is impeded by the kinds of legislative initiatives that have been making their way to the Supreme Court. There are midrashic commentaries and rabbinic literature spanning nearly 2,000 years that have painted an idealized picture of the fetus, including having it studying Torah while in the womb. But these are commentaries and individual opinions. They're not law. Normative Jewish law doesn't recognize the fetus as being a nefesh, in this case meaning an actual human life. That status attaches only when the head begins to crown during birth. Until that moment, halacha, Jewish law, doesn't view the fetus as having an identity independent of its mother. As the Talmud puts it, gufahi, meaning it's her body up until the birthing begins. For that reason as well, the Talmud denies the father any right to decide the fetus's fate. 
just as he has no say in whether his wife gets a haircut or needs an appendectomy. Gufahi, it's her body, not his. The sages of blessed memory base their ruling on a verse in Exodus 21 as it relates to another verse, this one in Numbers 35. Here's what the Exodus verse says, quote, When men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues to the mother, the one responsible shall be fined, unquote. Now hear what the Numbers verse says, quote, You shall not take a ransom for a murderer's life, unquote. That verse is crucial. Under no circumstances can money buy a person's way out of a capital crime. So if the Exodus verse says a fine is the punishment for a person who causes a miscarriage, it follows that the unborn fetus is not considered a life. Now, someone could argue that the Exodus verse refers to a fetus that hasn't yet been fully formed, probably only a few weeks old at best. The same piece of Talmud, however, that interpreted the verse to mean a fetus is not a life also makes clear that it means that it's not a life until the very last moment before the head emerges from the woman's body. Gufahi, it says, it's her body and her body alone, and it's no different from any other part of her body. And it's definitely not a life as Judaism defines life. The late one-time chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz, a renowned medical ethicist in his day, once wrote that in Jewish law, the right to life of a fetus, quote, before birth is entirely unrelated to theological considerations. Neither the question of the entry of the soul before birth nor the claim to salvation after death have any practical bearing on the subject, unquote. Although he acknowledged halachic regulations do strenuously try to protect the unborn child whenever possible and whenever practicable, for example, one can violate Shabbat in order to save an unborn child. He added that none of those regulations are based on the premise, quote, that the fetus enjoys human inviolability, unquote. Baron Jakobowitz was orthodox. A conservative authority, the late Rabbi David Feldman, wrote this in his book on the subject, quote, while Christianity's position on abortion has raised the moral level of Western civilization in this regard and has succeeded in sensitizing humanity to a greater reverence for life, it is obviously comprised, at the same time, of theological postulates which the Jewish community cannot share, unquote. That's normative Judaism's position, and it all begins with that verse from Exodus 21. By interpreting the verse the way they did, the sages in another section of the Talmud were able to rule that a woman's life takes precedence over the life of her fetus. When a pregnancy endangers the woman's life, the fetus must be aborted. The sages ruled that way despite one sage's claim elsewhere in the Talmud that a fetus, quote, is fully fashioned on the 41st day of pregnancy, unquote. Maimonides codified the sage's decision in chapter 1 of his The Laws of Murder, and so did the authoritative code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. Until it begins to be born, the fetus is not a life according to established Jewish law. There's also a principle of Jewish law that states that, quote, one life may not be taken to save another, unquote. In this law, too, then, we see that the unborn fetus is not considered a nephesh because its, quote, life, unquote, can be taken, especially if the mother's health is involved. For those sages and the rabbis who came after them who prefer to accept the claim that a fetus is fully developed by the 41st day, another principle of Jewish law enters the picture in order to protect the mother's life. The fetus is classified as a rodef, a pursuer seeking to cause harm or to kill another. Where a rodef is concerned, we're permitted to take one life to save another. 
An aside, the Torah equates rape with murder, and it classifies a rapist as a rodef who may be killed, if that's the only way to stop him from committing the crime. But that's for another discussion. All of what I just said would seem to suggest that Judaism, in fact, supports a woman's right to choose. After all, it's her body. And the fetus, regardless of its stage of physical development, is not an independent life. And indeed, the more liberal authorities agree, albeit with reservations on moral grounds. It's one thing to allow and even encourage a woman to have an abortion because her health, mental or physical, may be endangered by the fetus. It's quite another to look with dispassion on an abortion performed when no danger exists or worse, is performed for frivolous reasons. In one respect, though, Judaism does offer a backhanded support for a woman's right to choose if her health is at risk and she refuses to abort. In that case, a bet-din, a Jewish religious court, theoretically can order her to have one, although these days it has no practical way of enforcing such an order. It would be more accurate, therefore, to say that Judaism supports a woman's right to have an abortion for reasons it considers valid, while recognizing that the decision on whether the reasons are valid must be the mother's. The effect may be the same, but the position isn't. Some authorities, of course, insist abortion is prohibited by Torah law itself. Their reasoning, however, is convoluted. In context, it states in Genesis chapter 9, quote, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, unquote. However, the Hebrew doesn't quite resemble the translation. The phrase, shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam, literally means, whoever sheds man's blood within man. As the sage Rabbi Yishmael put it, quote, What is a man within another man? an embryo in his mother's womb, unquote. However, as my listeners have probably figured out after 17 podcasts, and as Tevye says in Fiddler on the Roof, in Judaism, there's always another hand. Yes, that verse in Genesis literally can be read as whoever sheds man's blood within man. But on the other hand, it can also be literally translated this way, quote, whosoever sheds man's blood within man shall his blood be shed, unquote. That changes the Genesis verse from being a biblical command against abortion to becoming a mandate for any method of execution that doesn't require shedding blood. In the Talmud's day, that meant hanging. In modern times past, that meant the electric chair or gas chamber. And today means lethal injection. In any case, what the rabbis who see an abortion ban in Genesis 9 can't answer is why. If abortion is murder, it's nevertheless not classified as a capital crime either in Exodus 21 or in any other Torah verse, or in the deliberations of the sages, or why, in fact, it carries no punishment as such. Here's the bottom line. Most authorities would permit abortions if the physical health of the mother is in danger. Some are more comfortable allowing it through the first 40 days. Many others will allow abortions all the way up to the moment of birth. Admittedly, defining the health of the mother is subject to varying opinions, some see it as her life is in actual danger, others that there's a potential risk to her life, still others extend it to a threat to her general physical health and even her mental health. And as I noted earlier, some authorities have a very liberal view of what mental health means in this context. Benzion Meir Chai Uziel, the late Sephardi chief rabbi in pre-statehood Israel, what was then known as Mandatory Palestine, once ruled in favor of an abortion when tests showed that the mother would likely become deaf if she carried to term. 
If a woman became pregnant after a rape or incest, many authorities would allow an abortion in those cases. Some would even allow it in cases where the fetus developed out of an adulterous relationship. The adultery issue is informative as well because a rabbi in the Middle Ages ruled that such fetuses may not be aborted. A generation or so later, however, another rabbi ruled that the fetus could be aborted, and it's his reason that's important. In ancient times, he said, adulterers were supposed to be executed, assuming, of course, that a case for adultery could actually be made in court, which, given what was said in last week's podcast, is highly unlikely. Anyway, the rabbi reasoned that the woman would be executed even though she was pregnant. Executing the woman meant executing the fetus. So what difference is there, the rabbi asked, between executing a fetus and aborting one? Abortions also were seen by many authorities as acceptable if tests show that the unborn fetus would suffer from some horrible disease or physical deformity. Even Orthodox authorities on the right have permitted abortions in cases of Tay-Sachs disease, for example, or even in rubella cases. Clearly, there is no easy answer to where Judaism stands on the broad abortion question. But just as clearly, we have a stake in preserving Roe v. Wade, and our voices need to be heard whenever the issue comes up before a legislature or a court. In Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruled restricting abortion violated a woman's right to privacy. For us, tampering with abortion in any substantive way infringes on our First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Just like with freedom of speech or freedom of the press, both of which are under attack by many of the same people who oppose abortion, period, tampering in any way with freedom of religion opens a door we should never have to go through. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear from you about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.